The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of God. Thanks, Jane. Um, today we begin our fall preaching series, and we're really excited about tackling these two small books in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Thessalonica. It's a city in Greece. It's one of the few... Uh, cities, biblical cities, still in existence today. And, and these might be f- hard to find when Jane said, let's go to those passages. You might still be trying to find that passage in your Bible. But these two small books at the end of the New Testament, Testament they're grouped with the rest of the T books, Timothy and Titus. So all the T's are kind of wrapped together towards the end. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Uh, but it's not too far to the left from that. Um, we have these really beautiful um, journals, these scripture journals that are available on the table right before you leave the sanctuary. We wanted to get these and make these available to you free of charge for any who would like to follow along with us. There's these beautiful journals that are um, published by Crossway uh, Publishing, and on the left side of the page is uh, the scripture, the ESV uh, version that we, that we follow here. Uh, or read from here. And then on the right side are line journal pages that you can follow along and highlight and make notes as you're walking through. Our life groups um, are also going through this material as well. So please uh, take one and enjoy that. Uh, they cost us $3. If you'd like to contribute to that, just like a, a love offering, uh, drop a couple bucks in the offering uh, box or you can give online to any amount. But if not, please feel free to enjoy this and take one of those home uh, today. Well, let's talk about this series. Let's talk about these people and the message that is being brought to them. Uh, These are relatively short letters. They're really uh, small uh, to this church in a city called Thessalonica. And this city has everything. Uh, they, were, uh, the tr- they were right in the middle of the trade routes. They had um, uh, trade route connecting commerce to the rest of the world. You've heard the phrase that all roads lead to Rome. Well, they were right there on one of those main roads that connected them to the rest of the world for trade.
trade and commerce. They had gold and silver and copper mines uh, from which they uh, made materials and weapons and buildings. They had forests for uh, lumber to build houses and other things. It's no confusion as to why Paul chose this city to, to bring the gospel to. It was Paul's philosophy and practice to bring the gospel to these hubs that connected the gospel to the rest of the world. Because if you change that city, you change the world with the gospel. And so Paul comes into this city, he proclaims the gospel, and a church is born. And people come to faith in Jesus, and they gather as God's church. And some scholars think that Paul was there maybe a month. And he was forced out of this city due to intense persecution. And you know that if Paul is leaving a church he founded because of persecution, he's in pretty big danger because he doesn't do that unless he has to. And so Paul flees to Athens. As you read in our beginning, it was addressed from uh, three men, Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, also known as Silas. And so Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they go to take shelter in Athens And Paul's heart is broken. He misses his friends and these new Christians. He loves them. As you read in this passage, you hear this deep affection. He says, I thank God for you. He even says later that you are my joy. You are my glory. And you see his heart is bleeding for these people and he can't be with them. And so he's heartbroken. And he wants to check in on them and see how they're doing. And so he sends his prized friend and ministry partner and young pastor, Timothy. He sends Timothy back to this church. Timothy's lesser known, and so he's not going to be noticed as much as Paul would be by the officials. And he goes to check on them, and he comes back to Paul with a report. And what we have are these two letters from Paul to the church as a response to that report that was brought to him. Okay, so now you guys are caught up. You know everything I know. Let's go, let's go into this passage. So this is what it is. They're one month. You imagine being a Christian for a month. A month you're a Christian, what hap- what, what, how vulnerable would you be to error? How confused would you be about spiritual things a month in? How would you live this new life in Jesus Christ? How would you give an answer to people that were challenging you in your faith? And remember, all you have is Paul. Paul couldn't tell them, guys, just, do, just read your Bible. And all the answers are there. There was no Bible. All they had was the message that Paul proclaimed to them in that short period of time. And now Paul is gone. They were babies. They were babies in their faith. Some of you have been a Christian for decades and you're still confused. You're still, you're still chaotic. You still have so many things about your faith that you're unaware of or don't know about. You still don't know how to give an answer to people when they challenge your faith. Now imagine if you were like these young believers. Imagine you've been taught about Jesus for a month and then the only pastor and Christian you've ever known has left. You'd be in pretty big danger and Paul cares for them they're babies in their faith and they ask questions like young toddlers ask who don't know a lot of things and that's why a lot of the themes in our in our in our um, letter that we read addresses a lot of things that young people in the faith might address they ask questions like what happens when you die they ask questions like what when Jesus comes back what will it be like your kids ask questions like this what happens when we die If Jesus comes back and we raise from the dead, when Jesus returns, are we going to be like zombies? What happens with people who don't know Jesus and then they die? What happens with them? What's heaven like? Are we going to be like ghosts or like superheroes? Why do old people have hair in their ears? You know, these these are questions, you know, and it's like, 
Why are you asking me that? Uh, they, they ask questions like toddlers ask. They ask questions like, like little kids ask. And, and they're asking questions like that as well. And so these letters are an ongoing conversation between these young believers and their pastor, the only Christian they've ever known, for how to live faithful lives, for how to stand firm in their faith, for how to hold fast to what is true in the midst of a lot of trouble and struggle uh, and confusion in life. That's what they're facing. And the place where Paul starts his letter is to recap for them how they became Christians. Is to recap for them how they became Christians in the first place. You know, the subject of this introductory passage is incredibly simple. Paul is addressing the question, what does it really mean to be a Christian? I told you it was simple, maybe even too simple, that we might expect from Paul, the apostle, writing to this church. I mean, give us some meat here. But I'll tell you why it's the right place for Paul to start, and it's the right place for us as we start this series as well. For anyone struggling in their faith and learning how to be a Christian, like I said, you may have been a Christian for decades or for a month. This is the right place to start. Because no one comes to church expecting to hear about what Christianity is. You kind of know what it is. You know the premise of it. Why do people come to church, typically? Not to know what a Christian is, but to know how to be a good one. So we come to church, and I want to learn how, I come to church, why? To be more patient, to be kind, to, to, not, to, to know how to struggle with temptation and to, to overcome sin. How do I be a good person? How do I earn God's favor? And so most people approach God and Christianity not with thinking, tell me the ins and outs, what does it mean? They say, how do I do this? How do I play this game? How do I be a good Christian? Because I want to be a good Christian. Teach me to be nice. Teach me to be confident. Teach me to sin less and to be good more. And so addressing these Christians who want to be better Christians, Paul starts not with the rules of Christianity. He starts with the basic ingredient of what makes a person a Christian in the first place. And it's the gospel. He calls it the gospel, the good news. Again, really simple, right? So simple. You guys want to know about what it means to be a Christian? Let me tell you about the gospel. What does it mean to be a Christian? He tells us in verse 4 to 5, and these verses are the heart of this chapter, the center point of his focus. In verse 4 to 5 says this, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. Paul says it's not enough to know the words of Christianity. It's not enough to know the principles of what it means to be a Christian. Meaning it's not merely about agreeing on certain ethics and certain doctrines and certain beliefs. But being a Christian is primarily about an experience that a person has. It is like spiritual dynamite. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who has experienced the power of God. The power of the gospel. The word that Paul uses is the same word in the Greek where we get the word dynamite. The, the word comes not just in principle, but like dynamite to the heart. What makes a person a Christian is nothing less than an experience of spiritual explosion that happens in the life of a person. Paul says the gospel comes with power, changes everything in our lives. It reorients our passions. It redirects our ambitions. It changes our motives. It even has the power to make us an entirely different person. 
It has the power to take, make us a person who has an identity of sinful and guiltiness before God to a person who has an identity of innocence before God. What can do that? Not a word, not power. I mean, not a principle, but power. Something only God can do. Now, we may first come to Christianity through words. I want you to think about that. Do you remember what it was like for when you became a Christian? Maybe it's been decades, maybe it's been years, maybe it's been weeks, maybe you're investigating right now. Do you remember what it was like? The gospel didn't come for, feel like it came in power. There was a time when you were just trying to learn. It came mostly in words and teachings and information, and you were learning stories and you were learning principles. But then there was this point where the message doesn't just inform your mind, but you start to realize that you yourself are changing. That it used to be on words and principles, but then you realize something is happening inside of me. I've known these stories, I've known these principles, but now I'm changing. My feelings are different about things, God, and people. The memory of the way I once lived, that I enjoyed living in, now the memory of just the way that I once pursued, it breaks my heart to think about living that way again. You realize that you're changing and you know it's God. And you step back and you say, what's happening? Like, I'm not the person I once was. And you realize that it's not just a principle to follow, but you realize that God and his power is changing who you are. And Paul is very excited because this is what he sees. Not because he's witnessed the spiritual explosion happen in their hearts, but he sees the aftermath of it. And he's pumped. And he's writing to them and he's saying, I'm so excited because I see things that are happening in your life that can only be described as fruit of a spiritual explosion that has happened in you. Paul says, I know this gospel has come to you, not only in word, but in power because your work of faith, because your labor of love, and because your steadfastness of hope. How do you know that you've become a Christian? Not in principle only, but in power. You are a believer, you are a lover, and you're a hoper. Now, I checked, it's, it is a word. The hoper is a word. You are a believer, you are a lover, and you are a hoper. And, and use, this, use these things to diagnose your own heart. Every Christian is without exception a believer, a lover, and a hoper. And Paul elaborates on these three things throughout the first chapter. This is the heart of the passage, so let's take one at a time. What does the power of the gospel result in? It results in the work of faith. Living by faith. What does that mean? Faith, well, faith in what? Well, faith in God, of course, particularly in what God has done for them, explained through the gospel. Paul, Paul tells us in verse 4, he tells us what God has done. Look, in, look closely. Paul says, I know how you became a Christian. Do you know how you became a Christian? God chose you. It began with the grace, gracious choice of God. The idea of God's choice in salvation, the doctrine of election, of God's free choosing, not based on anything good that we have done, but his pleasure of his will, is often a controversial topic. It's something that can divide churches and divide Christians the world over. Many people will wonder, well, where does the Bible really teach in God's choosing of us for salvation? This is a great place, a very clear place where, where the question is answered. How does a person become a Christian? Paul says, I know how. It's God's choice. 
If you are a Christian today, it is the result of God making a choice to do a miraculous work in your heart by his grace, apart from which you would never truly know or choose God. You know, why does Paul bring this up? Is he trying to stir up controversy? Because it even seems to me as I read this verse a dozen times over the the past week, a strange placement in his sentence. It's almost like he's talking and he has to pause and he has to insert this doctrine of election and then he continues on with his phrase. Why does he do it? Here's why I believe he does it. To remind them that all of their virtue of Belief, faith, love, and good work and hope is not what secured God's love for them in the first place, but rather they are symptoms of the love that God has given to them. The alternative would be Paul saying, I'm so thankful that to hear of the good news of your love and your faith and your good work among people in the town and your hope in God. Because guess what? If you keep up all of that good work, what awaits you is God's blessing and acceptance. He doesn't say that. If salvation is the result of God choosing us based on our obedience and our measure of faith and our character of love and our uh, demonstration of hope, then we're in a bad place because none of us would do that. None of us could meet up to God's standards. When we do that, we make all of those Christian virtues works that we use to earn God's favor. And we certainly don't want that. And Paul is adamant. He's adamant here. He's adamant in his writings to the church throughout the New Testament about clarifying what is the gospel, what is the good news, and what it's not. And he would contend that a gospel message that does not communicate the unearned choice of God for salvation is no gospel at all. He says, that's not good news, that's bad news. Because if God chooses us based on our character of love and hope and faith, it's bad news for all of us. But the gospel came to you, and it changed you. And now I know that God has chosen you because of the fruit of your life. And so what Paul is thankful for is that God has chosen them and that God's favor has resulted in their life in a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope in their life. I want to focus on verse 4 and a phrase in there that is really, really neat we need to pause and look at. And that's the phrase, brothers loved by God. Brothers loved by God. Do you see that? He says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Let me ask you a question. If I were to call you sweetheart, how would that make you feel? Maybe you're thinking, well, that depends. That depends, right? It depends on a lot of things. One, it depends. Let's start with small. It depends if, are you a female? That depends, right? And then the second thing, are, are, you, are, you, are we close? And the third thing is, are you my wife or, <laughs> or my daughters? <laughs> so really, if you're not my wife or my, or my daughters, it's really weird if I call you sweetheart. We can agree with that. Or if you're the, if, unless you're the, the drive-thru clerk at Taco Bell taking my order. She calls me sweetheart for some reason all the time. But anyway, I digress. What, what's happening here? When Paul says in verse 4, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, he is using a term of sweet endearment. And the same term that is used all over in the book, the Song of Solomon, 
which is a love letter between a man and a woman. And it is in no way of sexual nature, but it is like the word sweetheart. Would you be distracted if we read in verse 4 from Paul, for we know, sweethearts, that he has chosen you. That would be very strange, but this is kind of what Paul is saying. A less distracting word would be, of course, beloved. The word here is a noun. It's not a verb. It's not, God, it's not people loved by God. He is using one word, a, a noun, a, a, an object of God's sweet affection. For we know, sweethearts, that God has chosen you, beloved. And love in our culture has been so twisted. It's lost its weight. It's been so distorted as how it's been portrayed in our culture. It's been portrayed through sexuality. It hinges, our identity of love hinges on the erotic love. Or maybe even on the romantic love. And so when it's not erotic or not romantic, we don't know what it is. And so when we encounter, I want to make it offensive in a way when I say sweetheart. Because when we read love, we pass over it. Because when we read a letter from God, inspired by his breath, and we say, God loves you, you go go like this. Cool. You shrug your shoulders because love has lost its weight. Oh, that's awesome that God loves me. I love my dog. I love bacon. I love sunsets. I love lamp. You know, whatever it is. You're like, I love these things. God loves me. That's really cool. God has to love me. He's God. And so we just keep reading, and we're not floored by it. They would have been. They would have felt Paul saying, for we know, sweethearts, that God loves you, and he's chosen you. If you call someone sweetie, you've crossed a line into relationship, into very, a specific kind of relationship. A, a, an important relationship. How do we come into relationship with God? He, he chooses us. He looks upon us with favor and love and accepts us, not because of any good that he sees in us or even foresees in us, but he looks at us and, and he loves us and he, and he brings us into relationship with him, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. He, he brings us and is able to call us beloved. And this is the gospel because of what Jesus has done. That even though we've been unfaithful to him, he calls us his, his beloved bride. That even though we have squandered his blessings, he calls us his beloved children. That even though we've cursed him as our enemy, he calls us his beloved friends. Not because of anything that we've done. This is faith. And Paul says, I know that the gospels come in power and change your life because you believe this. You believe that God calls you his beloved. And it's not because of anything that you've done. And this faith has sounded forth through the nations, he says. Literally, he says, it's echoing. It's echoing that you are living grounded and anchored in what God has done for you. This is living by faith and not by sight. In the midst of your suffering, you're clinging not to your demand uh, as Christians for comfort in the world. You're not living by sight, but you're clinging to Christ who has rescued you. You're clinging to the promise of God who has chosen you. You know your life is secure in him. And and that that only happens because of one thing. God must have chosen you. God must have initiated with you, and the word must have come in power. Because no one would do that otherwise.
You are his beloved. The result of the gospel power in our life will be a work of faith to believe that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you and it has nothing to do with your character or record? In fact, it is in spite of that. That's faith. It's not faith in a principle. It's not faith in a doctrine per se. It's not faith in a word. It's not faith in love. It is faith in a power of God. And so we believe that. Jesus died for me in my place. And it's his righteousness, not my own, that I am called his beloved. We say, thank you, Jesus. Paul is pumped because they're able to say this. He's excited. And then he goes on, he goes on to show more symptoms of this. And why is he, is he excited? The power of the gospel also makes a Christian a lover. The power of the gospel results, it results in a labor of love. love. Paul notices their labor of love. Look in verse 9. He highlights their expression of love, both their expression of love for him and people, but also their expression of love for God. In verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is the definition of love that Paul chooses. He says, you love. You know how I love? Because you received us and you've turned from idols and now you serve God. That is not the definition of love that I would expect. I would have thought, Paul said, you know how I love? Because, wow, wow, your temperament has changed. Wow, you're really nice. Wow, you're really kind. Oh, wow, thank you for the gift that you've given to me. But that's not what he says. How do people normally express love? Well, through those ways, you know, kindness, gentleness patience. Love's much bigger than an emotion or a personality temperament. What is love? Don't sing it, please. What is love? Here's what love is. Love is God's appointed way of saying to another person, I belong completely, permanently, permanently and exclusively to you. Love is giving of oneself to another. Paul says, how do I know that you love? You gave yourself to us. And you gave yourself to God. This is what Paul is so exciting about. He says, you loved us by receiving us. You gave yourself in relationship to us. And you made it so easy for us to give ourselves in relationship to you. But then he says, and you turned from your idols to serve the living and true God. This is love. How do we love God? By giving ourselves completely and permanently and exclusively to him. How does Paul know that these new Christians love God? By turning from their idols to God and to serving him only. By repenting of sin and turning to serve the Lord completely, permanently and exclusively. How do we know that we love God? By doing the same. How do we know that we have come to love God? By repenting of sins. By turning to the Lord and serving Him completely and permanently and exclusively with our whole life. And that is why it is right for of all the adjectives to choose, for Paul to choose to tie with the word love, he chooses the word labor. Because that's exactly what it is. It's the hardest work that you and I will ever do in this life. 
to leave a life that is centered around ourselves and to turn to God and say, my life now belongs to you. Do with it whatever you want. The hardest thing we'll have to do. And so Paul uses this word of labor. And it's really, it's almost like a military word. It's one of contention and fighting and wrestling. He says, but I look at you and I see that you are working to give your life to God. And that is the real expression of love. To fight sin, to resist temptation, to wrestle with our emotions and our feelings, to submit to God is the hardest work that we will do. And Paul looks at them and says, I know the gospels come to you in power and love. You know how I know? Because you no longer live for yourself. You live for God. If the gospel is true, it is the only thing that ultimately matters. What is your life really about? What's important? What influences do you listen to? What opinions matter to your life? How do you go about answering questions of what's right and what's wrong? How do you make decisions in your life? And let me say this. If you believe that the God of the universe created all things and he sent his son, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died the death of a criminal, and did it all for the purpose of removing God's wrath from you for your sin and to give you new life forever in the fullness of joy with him. If you believe that, why would you live for anything else but him? The truth and weight and glory of Jesus ought to disturb us, so much so to the point where we give up everything for him. You see, if we have a work of faith to believe that this gospel is true, think about that. You believe that God raised Jesus from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins, and you think your choices belong to you? You think your finances are yours? You think your family is yours? You think that you can live without God? If we believe the gospel, then we would say, everything is yours. My life is yours. How can anyone truly know even a little bit about Jesus and live half-heartedly for him? How could anyone say, I believe in Jesus, I'm just not ready to give my whole life to him? there's no way you believe in Jesus then. Because if you did, with full conviction of what he's done and who he is, the most joyful thing you would ever do is give your whole life to him. If you haven't given your life to him, this spiritual explosion has yet to happen in your heart. The gospel hasn't changed you because it hasn't come in power. It's only come in principle, only in words. Only in things to do right. You're trying to be a better Christian without being a changed person. And we keep hitting our head over the wall for that. How do you know the power of the gospel is changing you? You stop asking questions like, what should I do with Jesus? And you begin asking questions, Jesus, what do you wish to do with me? We go from saying, God, okay, how do I bring in this Christianity to influence my life? And we start saying, how does my life come under what you're doing? How can I give my life to you? What do you wish for me so that I can do it? This is faith. This is love. Are any of you troubled by this? I mean, does this make you a little uncomfortable? It should, and I, and I want it to. But the question is, what will you do with it? Like, what, what will you do with those feelings that you have? Paul would encourage us to to receive this with a full conviction. 
not a partial conviction. He says, I, I know it's come to you in, in power and not just in word, not in principle. I know you're changing. I know that you receive this word in full conviction. To, full conviction. Because partial conviction will lead to change. It will lead to temporary change. It will lead to behavior change. It will lead to temporary remorse over sin. But full conviction of the gospel message, it leads to confessing that we live completely and permanently and exclusively for Jesus, and we're glad about it. Because he's the fullness of our joy, and he's the reason that we exist. And he calls us his beloved And we know that we will never come into full satisfaction in this life or in the next without knowing him, receiving him with full conviction. So we're glad to do it. And we say, how can my life come under this? How can I walk with you? Paul encourages us. He encourages us that there is hope of forgiveness. He's excited about them. He's excited for what they have done. He's excited, more importantly, what God has done in them. He shows us one final thing, finally, not, not only the power of the gospel to make us believers and lovers, but also the steadfastness of hope. He makes us hopers in the gospel. Paul is happy to hear that these Christians are waiting for something to happen. They're waiting for Jesus to come back. They're looking to the skies. They're waiting for his return. And he recognizes that this future hope influences their present calling. So there's this future hope that we see throughout the whole, the whole letter of Paul to this church that I want to point to you to this future hope. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul mentions the future return of Jesus because it is the future hope that affects our present calling and how we live today. And they are living differently in their present because of their hope in the future And I want you to know hope is not the same thing as optimism. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. Hope is not a matter of having a better attitude about your circumstances. Hope is not to say, don't worry, everything will be okay. And think, see, that's what it means to have hope and faith in Jesus, that everything will be okay. Optimism, I want to distinguish these two for you. Optimism is a temperament of personality, which not everyone has. But hope is a theological doctrine that every Christian ought to embrace. Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven and his future return is not only good news that we wait for, but it's good news for the present life. It means that you and I can give up control over every detail of our life knowing that the resurrected Jesus holds our life in his hands. It means you don't have to, you don't have to fear what others might think of you because the resurrected Jesus has secured your eternal blessing in God. It means you don't have to look elsewhere for true satisfaction because the risen Jesus is your satisfaction. It means you don't have to pretend that you're better than you are or hide your sins because the risen Jesus has proven himself for you and takes away God's wrath. And you may not think about the future return of Jesus very much. You might not think about the resurrection, his ascension, and his return very much. Paul talks about it a lot. He wants us to think about it well as well. And so think about this for the time being. Meditate on this. The resurrected Jesus in heaven is not meant, meant to make us wonder, where is Jesus and when is he coming back and what will it be like when he comes back? But instead, it should make us wonder, is there anywhere I can go where Jesus is not also with me? Is there anything that can happen in my life where God is not aware and where he cares and where he is able to direct my steps? Is there anything where God is not governing, governing 
the resurrected Christ who rules on the throne over all of creation, including my life and all my circumstances? Is there anything that I can do or anything that someone can do to me or anywhere I could go where God is not with me? And the answer is no. Because he was resurrected, because he has ascended into heaven, and because he will one day return, We know that if we are united to Jesus in faith, the bad things will turn out for good. The good things will never be taken from us. And the best things are yet to come. The fact that Jesus is alive and he's on the throne and he will return one day solves the problem of ever having to feel hopeless in the midst of suffering today. Knowing the end influences the present. Not if you've heard this analogy before, I've heard people talk about this, primarily pastors, that if you know the end of a sports game or championship, then when you watch it, you watch it differently. You ever heard that before? Like you're not afraid, you're not anxious, you're not worried about who's going to win because you know the end of the end of the game. I really don't like that analogy. It never really worked for me, and I'll tell you why. Uh, my favorite movie of all time is Gladiator, and I know it's cliche. I mean, you're for a guy, you have to love this, but it reaches me on a spiritual level, so just back off. It's a... Uh, my favorite movie, a few weeks ago, I watch it. I know the end of it. I know the end of the movie. I know the beginning. I know the middle. I know every scene. I'll quote it for you if you want. And still, as I'm watching it, I'm just a nervous wreck. I experience emotions of anger and shock and sadness and grief and times of joy and vindication. And I watch it, the whole movie, and I get to the end of it, and the release of emotion, and the credits are scrolling, and then I rewind it, and I start it right over, and I watch it again. Well, I don't rewind. I just I click play from the beginning. I know you're rewinding for some of you. Uh, you used to have to rewind it. it. Took you like five minutes, and um, and it doesn't work for me because I'm still anxious. I'm still I'm still chaotic. I still feel sadness. I still feel all of those things, even though I know what happens. And so here's my point: knowing that we've been accepted by grace and await Jesus' glorious return does not change the intensity of our present life. But it does have a real change on how insecure we feel in the present. Because some would say, if, if your life is hard, if you're facing difficulty, you're not being a good Christian. Because if you truly believe that Jesus will return one day, then why are you worried about anything? Is life hard for you? Are you facing difficulty? Are you stressed? Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Are you sick? Are you weak? Are you troubled? Are you confused? It's not because you're a bad Christian. Now, there may be sins in your life that are making life much harder than it needs to be, robbing you of the joy that God gives to you, that you should repent of and enjoy the communion with Christ and his peace that comes with repentance. But trusting Jesus does not change the intensity of the moment. But it does change how insecure we feel in the moment. These people are being persecuted. Many are dying. Life, for many of them, got worse than it was before. And if we long for Jesus and know that he's coming and know that when he does, he will take us to be with him forever, just as he promised It means that the joy that awaits us will wipe out any memory of the pain that we feel today. And even though it does not change the intensity, it does change the insecurity. 
We know that we are held secure in the love of God. We know that he will come back one day and take us to himself. And when he does, what awaits us is not his wrath, but the reward and fullness of God's joy. And so we endure suffering. We stand firm in the faith. We wait for Jesus. And our hope is secure in his triumph over sin and death, not in our endurance through our circumstances. What do you have faith in? Who do you have faith in? What do you love? Where is your hope? What are you putting your hope into so that you can have a good life? If it's it's Jesus, then you're a walking miracle. You're a walking miracle. The the word of God has come to you in power. A spiritual explosion has changed you. If it's not Jesus, he makes himself available to you. Do you hear this good news? Do you sense him inviting you into a deeper relationship with God? Is he challenging your views of what he thinks about you? Are you troubled by by his view of you as beloved or sweetheart? Do you think he could never call me that if he knew what I was really like? Do you sense him inviting you into his joy and his forgiveness? My invitation would be to embrace him. Embrace him today, for he has embraced you. Receive him, for he has accepted you. For Jesus comforts his disciples, and he says, For in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Let's pray.